Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning and want to express my appreciation to uh, Cabot and to the leadership for the invitation to be here. Um, we, as we were praying before the, the service uh, this morning, it uh, was uh, noted that a number of families have the flu. Uh, mine is no exception. And so we, uh, my wife and my three kids were not able to be here this morning uh, because our oldest um, came down with it on Friday. She's doing much better this morning, so uh, praise be to God for that. Uh, but if you can pray for us and for health, uh, we would appreciate that. And before uh, we get into God's word this morning, let us take a moment and pause and pray. Father, thank you uh, for this time uh, to be here this morning. And Lord, as we are all gathered here, uh, we now come uh, with anticipation uh, to hear what you would have to say to us uh, through your word. Uh, so Lord, I pray you would bless the words of my mouth and you would prepare all of our hearts uh, to receive uh, what your spirit wants to say to us this morning. And Lord, we, are, we recognize uh, our dependence upon you and upon your spirit. And we pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so I know a number of you, I've known a number of you, I should say, uh, for many years. It was great to, so I came in this morning to be greeted uh, by familiar faces. Um, and so uh, some of you I'm Facebook friends with, uh, others uh, receive our newsletter uh, for the ministry that my wife and I uh, are called to and that God has entrusted to our care. Uh, so for that group of people that I just described, you're aware of the story that I'm about to share. For those of you that I have not met, I realize this will be new to you. Uh, but back in December, uh, we lost my mom after a 19-month battle with pancreatic cancer. She was diagnosed back in May of 2018. And uh, after absorbing the, the initial shock uh, of, of her diagnosis, our minds, my, my family's uh, minds and, and I, uh, Turn to my mom's spiritual state. Now, don't get me wrong. My mom, well, by all human measurements that we would have, we would say she was a good person. Uh, she was very generous. She was hardworking. She clearly loved her family. But she was always resistant to confessing her sins and placing her trust in Christ. And perhaps that was because she was trusting in her own goodness to save her. Uh, perhaps... It was because she thought her own characteristic perseverance could get her through anything, like, like the day of judgment, even. Whatever the reason, despite having numerous family members who've trusted in Christ, numerous family members who are walking with him, uh, despite being in and out of Bible-believing churches um, over decades where God's word was preached, and having multitudes of Christians share Christ with her um, and her need for salvation, she would still resist. Many times she'd hear clearly from a sermon or, or from somebody's testimony and how, uh, from a changed life and how Christ had changed their life. But she was still resistant, just, just unresponsive to the things of God. And as her disease progressed, I, I for one began to despair. And I, even, I shared with a number of others, I shared with my wife, I said, I, I don't know what else to do. You know, I've, I've been doing this ministry thing for a long time, and I feel like I'm, I'm all out of tricks. I'm at a dead end. And my mom was staring death in the face and the possibility of eternity separated from a God, and I felt helpless to do anything about it. And just about a week before her death, my mom went back into the hospital because of some complications she had. 
uh, due to her condition. And once they got her in the hospital and they got her stable and she you know, stayed overnight, um, she was released and my sister and I were with her. And we were, we were driving, back, uh, driving her back to her house. And when she got in the car, she just began to describe her sadness. That she had wanted to make it through one last Christmas. This was probably about, uh, I think it was three or four days before Christmas uh, this past year. And she wanted to get through one last Christmas and she didn't think she was going to make it. She had tried a number of different doctors, different medical procedures, everything, everything you could probably do medically. And she thought, I'm not going to make it. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit prompted me to share the gospel with her one last time. And I opened like this. I said, Mom, do you remember all those years ago when Aunt Del, that's her, that was her aunt, that's my great aunt, uh, when she was so sick and I went and visited her? And my mom said, yes, I remember that. And I said, you know, I walked in and uh, right away, Aunt Del told me she didn't have any hope. And I said to her, Aunt Del, would you like to know how I, I have hope? And she said, yes, I would like that. And I had the opportunity to share with her how we were all separated by our sin from God, but that Jesus Christ had come to die on the cross and then through his resurrection from the dead uh, to forgive us of our sin and give us his life and forgiveness. And that day, my Aunt Del invited Christ into her life. Then I turned to my mom and asked, would you like to have the hope, peace, and forgiveness that Jesus Christ can give to you? And, and with words I will never forget, she said, I would if you'll give it to me. And I told her, you can ask him. And so then my uh, my sister and I led my mom in a prayer to confess her sins, to believe on Christ, and to receive him, and, and proclaim her belief in, in his saving power, to give him his, his peace, life, and forgiveness. Shortly thereafter, my mom became bedridden and unresponsive. That was the last conversation I actually had with her. I didn't know that at that time that that was going to be the case. It was hard to watch as her body uh, began to decline and deteriorate, but we had this, this inner joy knowing that she was at peace with Christ. And we still miss her in this life, of course, and we still mourn her death. Her birthday was just this past Friday on Valentine's Day. But we rejoice that she is now standing in the presence of her Savior, free from cancer, free from sin, free from death. And that, that's my mom's testimony, She'll, and she's never got to share it. But it's a beautiful picture of our text that we're going to look at this morning. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, as we, we heard from the readings earlier. And we'll see that it will teach us that God's saving grace makes us alive in Christ. And just by, by way of reminder, last week, uh, Pastor Cabot preached on uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, where Paul praised that the church in Ephesus will know the hope that they've been called to. Now Paul is going to be an answer to that very prayer. And he is going to unpack the hope of salvation in Christ. And when I, when I started out in campus ministry, uh, I'm sorry, when I started out in ministry, I should say, I started out in campus ministry. And so I spent a good amount of time uh, working with college students. I was with, on staff with Crew. It was back then it was Campus Crusade for Christ. I know we call it Crew now. 
And we used to say that we have to tell people the bad news before we can give them the good news. And that's what we're going to look at right now, the bad news, verses 1 to 3. And I, I want to start off by just giving you this warning. It's pretty dark. It's pretty bad. So just, just hang with me. So before Christ, this is our first point, we were dead in our sin. Let's take a look at verse 1, if you have your, your Bibles open. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, maybe on the face of it, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, all of us are aware that we're going to die. And uh, even as, as tragic as it can be to, to lose a relative or a loved one, uh, when you attend their, uh, their wake, uh, sometimes there's an open coffin. You see them laying there. They look at peace. They're peaceful. You know, we even have a saying, rest in peace. But that is not at all what Paul means by dead in our trespasses and sins. In verses 2 and 3, he's going to tell us exactly what that means. So let's take a look. Verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the first thing that we noticed, you notice that the word is walked, that we walked around in our trespasses and sins. That sounds a little unusual. Now how can you be dead and walk around in something? But the picture here is that we're like the walking dead. And that, that picture you see that they're staring at you in the red, that's what we're like, like zombies, or uh, to put it in a more popular vernacular we were a part of the zombie apocalypse. And while we could, and while we could, excuse me, and while we could walk, we were dead to the things of God and completely cut off from relationship to him. And in this state, you might think that we kind of wandered around aimlessly because that's kind of what it seems like zombies do, right? But we actually followed. We followed two things. We followed the course of this world we followed the prince of the power of the air. And as it tells us, in 1 John 2.16, this world system that we followed contained the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions. And in the book of Galatians, Paul is going to go a little deeper into what that means when he describes the flesh. In Galatians 5.19-21, he says this, now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as that wasn't bad enough, we followed the ways, we followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And in John chapter 8, uh, the, the Lord Jesus has an altercation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And he tells them, you don't listen to me because you're of your father, the devil. 
And before Christ, apart from him, so were we. And the idea here is that we were heading in the exact opposite direction, away from God, as we lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of our body and mind, as it says in verse 3. And if Paul stopped there and describing the human condition, you would feel like it's enough. That seems heavy enough. But he continues. And he tells us, like the rest of mankind, by our very nature, we are children of wrath. Now, last year, my daughter entered her school science fair, and she did it on bridges. And my wife was helping her out, testing different types of bridges and their strengths, and made all, made all of popsicles. Uh, so they had an arch bridge, and they had a flat bridge, and they had a, a trestle bridge, and you know, they did their experiments, and you'd probably be surprised to know that a bridge made up of numerous popsicle sticks, the trestle bridge, the triangle bridge, uh, can hold up to about 110 pounds, which was pretty amazing. Uh, but they you know, did their experiments, they gathered all of their evidence, and then they made their conclusions. Well, what Paul is telling us here is after examining the evidence about human nature, is that it is corrupted and worthy of God's judgment. And now I know some of you might be thinking, okay, Mike, wait a minute. I know some pretty good people who aren't Christians. They do good things. They're good people. You know, the fact is, I do too. I talked about my mom before she came to Christ. She was, by every standard we would have, culturally, humanly speaking, she was a good person. And in our ministry, the ministry that my wife and I have to the Muslim community here in, in the Chicagoland area, we know some good people, some good Muslim people who do some really great things. And in one sense, that shouldn't surprise us because it's still true, uh, as it, we are told in Genesis chapter 1, that God has created human beings in his image. So we have, still have some capacity to do great things. But what Paul has just described for us is how the fall, our rebellion against God, has corrupted our hearts and our very nature. When we measure things from a human perspective, by what we can see, it can, can look pretty good. But the difference is, as it tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, is that the Lord looks on the heart. He sees what we cannot see. And uh, recently, our mission group, the church we're attending now, that's what we call our small groups, mission groups, uh, we've been going through a book, the book Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And the final chapter of the book is called How Could a Loving God Send People to Hell? And here's what she writes about the inner workings of the human heart and mind. It has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. My thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true, but like a bag of flour infested by maggots, no part of me is pure. Christianity acts like a searchlight 
On the one hand, it confronts us with a God who sees our thoughts. He knows our hearts and our pretense, our words and our deeds. The parts we work so hard to hide are laid bare before him. And the one person with the right to judge has all the evidence. So that is the bad news that we see here in verses 1 to 3. And really, as you can see, it can't get any worse. And when, when I was a kid, there was a very popular um, cartoon series that would come on on Saturday mornings that would teach kids about grammar and math and science called Schoolhouse Rock. And some of you probably use that with your own kids. We use it with ours. They, they love it. But it, it's really effective in, in teaching them little factoids about those kind of spheres of education. One of my favorites in that series is, some, is one called Conjunction Junction. And it's with all these train cars that are uh, conjunctions hooking up different things. And, and the, the refrain in that song says, Conjunction Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Now we come to one of the most hopeful conjunctions in the entire Bible. As we are given the good news. That'll be our second point. We are made alive in Christ, verses 4 through 7. Let's take a look. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, I think before, before we move on, let's get an idea of what, what mercy is. And we'll, we'll look at it. We'll see some words like grace and faith, and we'll, we'll take, uh, put some definitions to those in a second. Uh, but the best way, I think, to define mercy biblically is to look at another Bible story, the story of Jonah. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. And you know, God has uh, his prophet, calls his prophet, tells, tells him, go to the city of Nineveh, who were the Assyrians, the enemies of, of Jonah's people at that time, of, of, of Israel. And he says, warn them. Warn them that they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah, being the good, obedient prophet that he is, says, no way I'm doing that. And so he gets on a ship and goes the opposite direction that God wants him to go. And God sends a fish and gets Jonah going back in the right direction. He goes to Nineveh and he says exactly the message God tells him to say. That 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And when they hear that message, the Ninevites repent. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and did not do it. So God's mercy is when he withholds the judgment that he says that he would bring. Now the difference between us and the Ninevites is the Ninevites received mercy because they repented. But we receive mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the only reason that God withholds his judgment, is because of his love for us. The one who has all the evidence and has the right and the power to condemn us withholds his judgment. And he doesn't stop there, as it tells us in verses 5 and 6. Let's take a look. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, you know those commercials? Like you see, they're kind of like the before and after commercials. Like you'll have the guy before who's on the latest fitness uh, kick or the latest fad diet and the before pictures of him out of shape and frowning and you know, pale, and the next picture on this side is him after, and he's tan, he's got a six-pack, and he's buff and grinning from ear to ear. Uh, between you and me, I don't actually think it's always the same guy. But, because me, this is a compare and contrast. And that's what, what Paul is doing here, is a compare and contrast. Before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses. But now, in Christ, we are made alive. Before, we followed the course of this world. But now, in Christ, we are raised up with him. We take part in his resurrection. Before, we followed the prince of the power of the air. But now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we are far above all rule and power and authority. We are above the prince of the power of the air. And our citizenship is in heaven. And why does he do this? Let's take a look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. F.F. Bruce, the famous commentator, he writes this. Throughout time and in eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. That God is going to hold us up to all the inhabitants of the universe, and he's going to say, look at what my grace can accomplish in the life of somebody that I redeem. And you may have noticed, if you're following the text closely, you may have noticed I skipped over something in verse 5. And when I finished seminary, uh, I uh, had a job washing windows because I was making a transition from seminary life to full-time ministry. And you know, I could be out there washing windows on a hot summer day or a freezing cold day. Believe it or not, you can wash windows in two-degree weather if the sun is shining. You, you can do it. It is possible. So you can be out there in those kinds of conditions and what do you think, everybody who passes by, what do you think is their favorite thing to say to you? You've missed a spot. That's right. Well, I'm happy to say I did not miss a spot. And the phrase that I'm talking about is, by grace, you have been saved. And the reason for that is that Paul is going to go into greater depth here in verses 8 through 10. So I, I've intentionally saved it for this point. So we're coming back to it. And just to give a real quick summary, I think what Paul has given us is what are the two what's. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are alive in Christ. Now, in verses 8 to 10, he's going to give us the how we are made alive in Christ. That's our third point. We are saved by grace. Let's read verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's define the term grace now. And I like how another commentator says it. He says this, Grace means the completely undeserved, loving commitment of God to us. When we were dead in our sins, God sent his son to take the wrath we had incurred for our sin through his death on the cross and then gave us life in his resurrection from the dead. The grace of salvation is received through faith. And uh, I mentioned before that I started out in campus ministry and when uh, I was working with college students and sharing the gospel with them, we would actually talk about these very verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And when we came to the word faith, this is kind of how I would describe it. Let's say that, that chair that you're sitting in. Now you could go up to it and you could kick it and you know, shake it to make sure it seems like it's, it's trustworthy, that it's going to hold you when you sit down. But until you actually sit in the chair, you do not demonstrate your trust that it will hold you until you're actually sitting down. And so that's how faith is operating here in this text. That until we actually exercise faith, we actually exercise trust and the fact that Jesus' death pays for our sin, then we are not showing faith. And when we do, we show that we have trust that God can save us. And Paul emphasizes this is a gift. This is not based on, this is based on God's work on our behalf. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no work. There's no good deed. And as a pastor friend of mine likes to say, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. As we saw in verse 7, God is the only one who retains the right to boast about what his grace can accomplish. And it tells us exactly what that is in verse 10. So let's take a look, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A couple weeks ago, uh, my boys, I have an uh, older daughter, Sophia, for those of you who don't know, and two younger boys, Andrew and Matthias. So, um, my boys and I, we attended a Lego STEM class at our local community center, a science, technology, engineering, and, and math class. And my boys, they, they love Legos. They love building with them, they love playing with them, especially my youngest one. If you let him just sit in his room all day, he would just play with Legos all day long. And at this class, they actually got to build motorized creations. And they got to do a merry-go-round, they got to do a tilt-to-whirl, they got to do a carousel swing. And what was the most fun to watch was the care that they took in, in crafting their, their Lego creations. And then the joy that they took as they finished and as they flipped on that motor and they watched it twirl around or swing or what I was going to do and asking other people to come over and share in their joy. Look what I did. Look what's happening here. And I uh, even was so excited about it too. Took pictures, posted on Facebook. You probably were Facebook friends. You've probably seen those two pictures already uh, that are up there. It was great. And this is just a little glimpse of what God is like for God to create us as his workmanship as his masterpiece, 
as he shows to the universe, look what my grace can do and accomplish in the life of someone that I redeem. But we're not just God's cosmic trophies. We don't just sit on a shelf and kind of collect dust somewhere in the universe. Like these, these creations my boys were making, we have a purpose. That God has recreated us with a purpose, and that is for good works. In John 5, 17, the Lord Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And now that we have been recreated, we've been redeemed by him, we do the things that he does. We, what we talked about before, a before and after. Well, here's another before and after. Before, because of our nature, we walked around in the deeds of darkness. Now that we have been recreated in Christ, we walk around in the good works of God. And as you get to the latter half of the, the uh, series here, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to give you some more specific definition to what he means by good works. And he'll talk about topics like what the unity of the church looks like, what Christian marriages looks like, children and parents, to spiritual warfare. And certainly, the good works that are talked about here aren't limited to those things. We can uh, see in other places in the New Testament where that's fleshed out even further, say in the, in the life of Christ, certainly. Uh, but also, uh, other epistles of Paul and, and the like. But the point here is that good works aren't earning you favor with God. We just saw that this is a free gift. These works are a demonstration of a heart changed by Christ, and they ultimately point to him. And one of those good works that I see here in, in this body is a plan you guys have for a new facility, a place to gather. I love it. I love it. And I love the description from your website. The purpose of the facility, simply put, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, while at the same time, blessing all the community. May this be a place where people can come and see transformed lives by Christ and see the works that a transformed life produces and that they in turn put their trust in Christ as well. So, what are some application points from this passage? The walking away from here today, how can we, how can we apply this? Let me suggest three things. Number one, Preach the gospel to yourself daily. And I know a number of you are probably familiar with this quote. It's a very popular one by, by Jerry Bridges, but it, it bears repeating. Your worst days are never so bad that you go beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Now, many days, I myself uh, feel like I've made a fatal decision, and my life is ruined, and I've really done it now, I need to hear this. I am not beyond the reach of God's grace. And on those days when I think I'm so wonderful, and I have it all together, and everything in my life is the best it can be, I am not without the need of God's grace. And a good practice, I think, is meditate on these truths, now, through the next week, you know, maybe take verses 4 through 7 and meditate on those and think about those. And those who, that's who you are in Christ, that we are alive with Christ, that we are seated with him. 
And that that would work in our hearts in such a way that would inspire us to move out toward others. And that's our second application. Oh, it's already up there. Now I have it up that says, share it with others. I should have said, share the gospel with others through your works and words. So if you're taking notes, cross out it and put gospel. So share the gospel with others through your works and words. And right now, our uh, church, Hope Fellowship in, in Lombard, uh, has a good relationship with a, a Turkish cultural center in Wheaton. And one of the things that we do with them uh, every month is an English cafe. Um, because you cannot survive in the United States and thrive in the United States without a good command of the English language. And a number of them are uh, recent immigrants, and so they really need to practice uh, their English. And it, is, and it is our desire to really help them learn English well. Now, it's, we're not trying to make this as a facade for something else. But it is also our desire to introduce them to Christ. So we begin sessions in prayer, and we pray in the name of Jesus, and they welcome that. And this past Christmas, we did a Christmas-themed one where we use uh, ornaments and uh, popular symbols of Christmas to explain why Jesus had to come. And incidentally, it is a wonderful way to really share Christ with anybody because I think a number of us really have forgotten what some of these Christmas symbols mean. So we would use the star, which obviously is a popular one, and showing the way to Christ. We use a Christmas tree, um, and if you know a uh, popular missionary story, that also uh, points to Christ, the, the man named Boniface, and we use that. Um, and we also, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the last one, I think I might use the stable for the last one. Um, but these symbols are a wonderful way to be able to share Christ with people uh, because they're curious, especially if they're from a, a different culture. So if you can think about it, uh, pray for us. Uh, in this endeavor as we continue to engage this, this Turkish cultural center. And then think about people in your own lives, at work, in your neighborhood, and in your family. I mean, if you're a student at school, and pray and ask God how you can serve them and also for opportunities and open doors to share Christ with them. What a great way to set up a place to gather as it opens. And the last one, Put your trust in Christ. So maybe you're here this morning. You've been coming to LifeSpring for a time and kind of checking out this uh, Christianity thing. And, and you would say, after we've uh, gone through our, our text this morning, that my life actually resembles more like verses 1 to 3 than it does 4 through 10. Well, know this. God's free gift of grace is on offer for you today. By putting your trust in Christ and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, you too can be made alive with Christ. And what God says in verses 4 through 10 about every Christian can also be true of you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for this time to be gathered uh, around your word. Thank you, Lord, when we were um, rebel sinners going in the exact opposite direction, away from your grace, away from um, your gift of salvation. Lord, you came after us. And you uh, suspended your wrath in mercy, and you extended your grace to us. And Lord, I pray that we would live in those truths. And I pray for those who, who don't know that yet, 
whether they are neighbors or, or friends or family members or people here today, Lord, that um, you would work in their hearts so that they could experience that grace as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.